you may have heard these words before, two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona, where we lay our scene. From ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. Do you know who wrote that? It was Shakespeare. It's the beginning, the prologue of Romeo and Juliet. Two households, families, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. When Shakespeare wrote those words, he wrote about the drama of a grudge-bearing feud between two families. And it showed how evil turns up even amongst family relations at such a level that it should shock us. Such drama has been devastating over the years. This is, of course, a play, and Shakespeare's play was devastating. It led to the death of Romeo and Juliet. But it's also a reflection of real life, what Shakespeare saw and what we see in Genesis 4. Friends, the title of this sermon is the big idea for today that our society will do anything to deny. That there is a secret killer in our society. It's not cancer, as much as that's an awful thing. It is not a disease. Now, the secret killer in our society, unlike what our political leaders say, is this. There is something wrong with us. There is something wrong with us. And maybe you've noticed this reforming, but there is something wrong with me. Against what our political leaders might say, we are actually broken. More than that, actually, more than just broken, as if it's sort of not my fault. No, no, more than that, we are fallen. We are sinful. The secret killer in our society is really no secret, but it's something that we want to suppress. The secret killer we're talking about is sin. Sin, as we've seen in Genesis 3, ruins everything of Genesis 2 and 1. Sin ruins everything. Sin ruins relationships. Sin sucks the joy out of life and what life is meant to be. Sin takes eternal life away and leads only to death. Sin promises and never delivers. Sin leaves a bitter taste in the mouth after it's been eaten. And sin turns us into the walking dead. Read Ephesians 2 verse 1. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We are the walking dead in sin. Which means, and here's the key question for this morning, how can you and I possibly deal with this secret killer of sin? See, when sin enters human hearts in Genesis 3, it then spills out into the world and, and, and we can't put that can of worms back. Oh, we try better education, better policies, better police, better armies, better something. We try and put the can of worms back and it's not working, friends. It's just not. 
When sin came into the world through that first man, Adam, all sinned. He is our federal head. We are all in him by blood. We're all, Shakespeare says, one big family, really. There might be two households, but we're all image bearers. Sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. And sin, friends, let's make no mistake, sin is not just doing naughty things, doing bad things. Sin, as we see in Genesis 4, is absolutely lethal. And in lethal doses, in this first episode, we see outside the garden, here are Adam and Eve's kids. Beautiful boys when they were born, I'm sure. And then here is an awful moment in their lives. And what we see here, if you're following the outline, firstly we see sin is like, if we're going to look at it in Genesis 4, it's like a crouching tiger or a hidden dragon. Adam and Eve were husband and wife in the garden. They had all God's good gifts, including marital relations. But here now they conceive and children are born outside the garden. And in this situation, we see they're actually conceived and born into now the life of sin. So Psalm 51 is true. Psalm 51, verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is now our life. This is the new situation. Yet in this situation, I want you to notice, actually, we pick it up in the first few verses of Genesis 4, even as children are born, Eve has hope. They're camping outside the garden. It's not going well. It's like, you know what camping's like? When there's sin involved, you know, you blame each other when the tent doesn't go upright, um, you're kind of frustrated and cold and hot, and that's, that's camping outside the garden now, that's sin, right? And then you add children into that mix, oh, <laughs> I, we love our children, we really do. Have you ever been camping with like little kids, right? The sun doesn't go down until nine o'clock in the summer and you're camping in a tent which is hot and stinks and they won't go to sleep. They're camping outside the garden, and now there's children in the mix. But Eve expresses hope. Did you notice this? Have a look. Eve expresses hope, right? Verse 1. Now, Adam and Eve, Adam knew his wife Eve. She conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man from the help of the Lord. Why do you think she says that? What do you think that she is remembering? What is ringing in her ears? Remember, they're camping outside the garden, trying to set up life in this world of sin. What is the promise is ringing in her ears? (gasps) Maybe this is the offspring who will be the serpent crusher. I've I've gotten an offspring. God promised that the offspring of the woman would come and crush the serpent. He's here, maybe she's thinking. Because the promise is ringing in her ears. Will he, Cain, be the serpent crusher? Will he crush a serpent? Time will tell. Will he crush a serpent or will he crush something else? Two brothers are born. Cain's a farmer, a gardener, as we saw in the kids' talk, which I thought was a really excellent illustration. He's a gardener, but he's gardening, and we know what this is like, outside the garden. What's it like gardening today? People love gardening. I don't particularly. People get astounded by that. Didn't you grow up on a farm? You know crops and stuff? Yes, but I know nothing about orchard trees. And I know nothing about flowers. It may surprise you. I know 
if you go to Woolworths, there's a, a certain small category to choose from, which is helpful for people like me. But Cain is frustrated in, in this garden. He's, he's gardening in a sinful world. What has Cain got to contend with now in this garden? Thorns and thistles. But it's not just thorns and thistles Cain has got to contend with, it's the sin of his own heart as he gardens outside the garden. Abel, his brother, the younger one, is a shepherd. And in the course of time, these grown-up boys, they bring offerings to the Lord. Cain brings an offering to the Lord, and just like his big brother, so does Abel. Perhaps Abel looks up to Cain, as little brothers do. Yet something happens. The Lord has regard for Abel's offering, but the Lord had, we read, no regard for Cain's offering. Now, we don't know what the circumstances of the offering are. We don't know, is, you know, is it because they're giving offerings because it's some sort of foretaste of the Levitical system? We, we don't know. But we do know that in this offering, it's some sort of, of their own initiative, thankfulness and recognition of God. But whatever is the case of this offering, what we do know this from the text, Abel's offering was different. Perhaps because it involved bloodshed. The death of a firstborn, the best, a real sacrifice. Whereas a plant sacrifice isn't the same. Is it? There are both sacrifices in the Levitical system, but friends, you know this, don't you? There's something different about cutting a watermelon and watching the juice flow out and cutting a lamb's throat and watching the blood flow out. The juice of a watermelon is not the same as the bloodshed of a lamb. Is it? But is that the difference? How would we know? Maybe it's surface level, but it's actually not the difference. It's not just because that there's a, an animal and there's a, perhaps a, a watermelon or, or a wheat or whatever it is. That's not actually the reason. And how do we know? Friends, when it comes to hard texts like this, we actually let the Bible interpret the Bible. And what we see across the scriptures is this when it comes to sacrifices and offerings. Sacrifices and offerings go bad if they're given with the wrong heart motivation. There are two ways you could sacrifice and make offering in the Old Testament where it either goes well or it doesn't go well. Two ways. One way is you make sacrifice and offering to thank God for his favour. That is one way. The other way is you make sacrifice and offering to earn God's favour. And that goes bad. You see, God's favour, his grace, is given to us. You don't earn it, you can't pay it back. You can't buy it by a sacrifice and offering. But all throughout the Old Testament, Israel particularly get confused and do this. So whilst God saves and rescues even Adam and Eve in their mess. Whilst God saves and rescues Israel out of Egypt and then they make sacrifice and offering. The sacrifice and offering is only to give thanks to God, not to earn his favour. And we mess it up all the time. If only if I did these right sacrifices, then God would bless me. No! That is not what the Bible teaches. It is not the grace of God. God gives you grace because you don't deserve it. You don't make sacrifice then to pay him back, like you're kind of swiping him some cash. 
here's a wad of sacrifice for you, God, thanks for the grace. You give thanks simply in the offering. You don't earn it, you don't pay it back. But that's where it goes bad. And how do we know that's what's going on here? Because the Bible interprets the Bible, Scripture interprets Scripture, Hebrews 11. In Hebrews 11 verse 4 we read this. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through faith, though he died, yet he still speaks. Do you see the blessing? Abel, Cain. Cain gives his sacrifice not by faith. It is Abel who gives his sacrifice because he trusts in God's grace. It's not the offering that matters, friends. Lamb, watermelon, whatever it was. It's faith in God that matters. That's what counts you as righteous. Now, it's not that Cain didn't believe in God. That wasn't his problem. You know, I dare say it's not the problem of many Australians. See, many Australians say, oh, I believe in God. I believe God exists. Well, James, who writes in his letter, you believe God is one, you do well. But get this, even demons believe. But how do demons respond? They shudder. Demons believe God exists, but they don't have saving faith in him. Demons don't trust God for their salvation. They know he's there. And he's sitting there 24-7. Demons believe in God. You can, you can say to your dying day, I believe in God and it won't make a difference to my life. I just believe in God and I'll die and I'll go to heaven. That is not saving faith, friends. Saving faith is to rely on him for your rescue, to repent and believe in him for your life. That is saving faith. Just to believe in God actually can condemn you. That's Cain. He knows God's there. He's having a conversation with God. He just doesn't trust God. Saving faith, justification by faith, is what God gives as grace and righteousness to us. That is the difference between Cain and Abel. Cain doesn't live by faith, but by self. And because of this, you notice what happens for Cain? If you live on self-reliance and not on God-reliance, what happens to your life? For him, it turns into one big ball of anger. Cain is angry. He is deeply angry. Why? Because he's self-righteous. And he justifies himself. I deserve this. I've done everything right. I've given the sacrifice. I obeyed the law that I made up. And now he's angry. That's what happens when you're self-righteous. But here is the danger. The Lord is actually gracious to Cain and the Lord gives him a gracious warning. Cain, we read it there in Genesis 4. If you do well in this situation, if you respond by faith, you'll be accepted. But here's your danger, Cain. Sin is crouching at your door. It has slithered over, it has crept over, and it's right next to you. It is right at your door. It's crouching in your heart. It's a hidden dragon, and it will eat you alive till you're dead. Sin's desire is to have you, 
and you must rule over it. Friends, it's interesting to see this. This is the first time sin is named as such in the Bible. In Genesis 3, there's this thing that happens and evil exists leading to death, but now it gets a name, a three-letter word, which in our society, we're okay with four-letter words now, even on the radio. That's all fine. You can use four-letter words all you want, but how dare we use a three-letter word like sin these days? Sin doesn't exist, and how dare you say that I'm a sinner? The Bible names it and shows the shame of it. We've seen it before, of course, but now it gets a name. It's identified and it makes now something lurking around human behaviour, seen and known. This overflows from our hearts into our words, moving our actions, creates more evil. Now, if you don't think, right, which even our political leaders say, if you don't think we should talk about sin, right, if you think we should not believe in sin, then you have no vocabulary that is able to describe our modern world. If you don't believe in sin, your vocabulary will be deficient in a modern world. How will you describe what happens to women who are victims of all sorts of crimes? Oh, that's, uh, that's not... What, what is that? Um, that's, that's unfortunate. How will you describe what happens to men who are murdered, sent into war by a dictator... Oh, that's just, um, that's, just, um, that's just war. No, it's sin. It's wrong. It's evil. Why can't we call it that? And sin isn't just over there. Sin affects us all. Sin crouches at our door and then it pounces and becomes a presence in your life. You see this all the time. Like Cain. The angry man becomes the anger. It consumes him. The one who gossips becomes gossip itself. The hater becomes the one who just lives to end other people's lives. Like C.S. Lewis said, the grumbler becomes the grumble. And he was talking about particularly hell. You live your life grumbling now, then in hell you become the grumble. That's the life you want for yourself. Friends, what are your crouching sins? What are mine? In the very early stages of sin, we seem to have more control, don't we? We seem, I've got this, I can handle this. Some of us even play with our sin, like it's a brown snake in a bottle. And if you haven't heard that story about me, ask me later. Some of us play with our sin. But do you know sin that crouches at your door wants you and it will have you? It will eventually, unruled, it will have us, it will devour us. Are we jealous like Cain? Do we hold envy that leads to bitterness? Anger that leads to hate? It will have you and it will kill you. Sin takes from us and others, and all it does is spews out death. Cain built his whole identity on him being the older brother, the righteous one, the good one, 
good reputation, good values, hard worker. Which meant he built his whole life on himself and not on God. And now in an attempt to keep his own special status, perhaps as firstborn, whatever he perceives is an attack on that, must die. And so, in his selfishness, in the sin of his heart, to keep that self-status, that self-image, he will now kill for it. It's premeditated murder, which Cain is shockingly unrepentant about. The murder scene we have in verse 8 is horrible. The unrepentant, unrighteous we see. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. What a conversation. Hello, brother. Imagine looking at someone as your brother and smiling, and yet in your heart you hold them in contempt. You want them to die, and you plan for it. You smile. Hello, brother. Come with me. And they're in the field, out in the paddock. No one else could see, Cain thought. But God sees. God sees everything. The circumstances about a brother going against a brother should take the wind out of you. There have been generations of sibling rivalry, of course. Like, I I have one sister, so I grew up with one sister. You know what it's like, sibling rivalry. You get the cups and you put the cordial in and you make sure that the levels of cordial are exactly the same. But when sibling rivalry spills, as Shakespeare says, spilling into civil blood. The American Civil War, one of my hobbies, I've got a few books on it, I read about it. History fascinates me, so at least we don't repeat it, but we do. The American Civil War, the stories of brother against brother. But here we see, in the first generation of human history, where there's so much hope, Eve says at their birth, I've gotten a man, maybe this is the serpent crusher. Now we see ancient grudge and blood is spilled, it's murder. And what unfolds in verse 9 is almost deja vu, it's almost Groundhog Day. Because God comes with the same sort of question for Cain. What was that question in Genesis 3? Where are you, Adam? Look at the question in Genesis 4. Cain, where is your brother? The question in Genesis 3 is, where are you, Adam? Is a question of, what's happened here? What have you done? The question of Genesis 4 is, where is your brother? What have you done? And look at Cain's answer. How should I know? And just like God asked for Adam, where are you? Cain says, how in the world should I know? Well, I don't know, Cain. It's a big world and you've only got one brother. The whole world, there's two boys. Where's the other one? He can't have gotten very far. Now, when God asks a question like this, right, he's not after information. He's after confession, Bring your sins to the light so it can die and you can be free from its slavery. 
He understands what's happening in your heart. And he wants you to understand what's happening in your heart. But let's cut to the chase. The Lord says, verse 10, what have you done? God knows what you've done. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain replies, basically repeating what God just said, verse 13, well, I shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. My punishment is greater than I can bear. Whoever finds me will kill me. Oh, great, now you're concerned about someone getting killed. But you're only concerned about yourself. Now you're concerned about murder. Now it matters. Cain's punishment is linked to his crime at this point, isn't it? Because his brother's blood cries from the ground. So the curse is so magnified for him. Here is a farmer who can no longer work the ground this way. His work is cursed. The ground was already cursed, but now Cain's work is cursed. Now, to be sure, friends, God could have just killed Cain on the spot. But as you keep seeing throughout Genesis, look how gracious God is, even to murderers. God is so characteristically gracious. God has been patient with Cain. He even gives Cain time and space to repent. But characteristically of Cain, and by the way, sinners stuck in their sinfulness, what do they do? They don't acknowledge sin. They won't confess. He doesn't confess. And look at this. In all of this, he shows no remorse for Abel. None. Zero. Not a mention. Does not say, my brother is dead. He says, well, someone's going to kill me. No remorse. His only brother. And then in verse 14, he has the audacity to point to God and say, you have driven me from the ground today, as if it's God's fault. Do we blame God even in our sin? What Cain does not understand and what we need to see today when it comes to sin and judgment So he says this, my punishment's greater than I can bear. But he doesn't understand this. Even in verse 15, the mark that God puts on Cain to protect him is God's grace to him. I will protect you. Look how gracious God is in the face of this person who just does not care and then blames God. And God is still gracious towards the God blamer. Now what is his mark exactly? We're not told. We are told Cain becomes a wanderer. We're also told that he does not repent. Cain's sin is fundamentally that he compares himself to Abel, then he competes to win by hate and murder. And we can be in danger of being copies of Cain. Particularly when we compete with people out of pride and selfishness. Particularly when we become unrepentant. We have selfish sorrow. Sorrow for ourselves, but never sorrow for those who are we hurt. We don't have a sorrow that leads to real repentance. We can just have pretense. We pretend just to look good. Second Corinthians 7 verse 10. Godly grief over your sin. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief, what does it produce? Pretend grief produces 
Death produces death. To have the mark of Cain today is to have God's patience for you to repent and yet don't. And to go to your death. I believe in God. I know he's there. I just don't care to repent of my sin and turn from my sin and trust him. But the person of faith in Jesus ought not be like that. We in this church will not have a culture where godliness is just keeping up appearances. We should not be pretending my life is sorted out. I'm a good person. We should not hold to things like my family name. That's important. My reputation. That's important. No, we can say, I want to bring my sins to the light and see them wither and die as I have new life in Christ. See, the difference with faith in God or not faith in God is a story of culture makers and breakers. Verse 17. In verse 17, we see Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Cain and his wife have a son. Name's a city. What is this city? I want you to see this. It's the first city in all creation. The first city. Why do people live in cities? In the ancient times, and in a sense still today, to gather to be secure in community. And in cities, culture is created as we mix together and share ideas and new ways of doing things. And here we see in verses 21 and 22, we've got beautiful things created in this city. There's music and arts are developed. The forger of instruments made of bronze and iron. There is protection, powerful tools for production. They built this city on rock and rolling generations of people who got together. Cities are for mutual benefit, to be sure. Cultures created, culture makers. But that's even as good as it is. Do you see what also happens in cities? What's also in those cities? Sinners. And whilst there are culture makers, there are culture breakers. People were created to uh, multiply and fill the earth. By God, to multiply and fill the earth. Yes, build cities, but we'll see the, the, the pinnacle of selfish and sinful city building is Genesis 11, where they build a city and a tower to make a name for themselves. In other words, to say, we don't need God. And here, that's what's going on from the beginning. They build cities, but they build cities where there's culture makers and breakers. Not many after generations of Cain, we meet Lamech. Do you see Lamech? And through Lamech, we see what life is like more and more outside the garden. Sin is spiraling outside of control. As society grows, sin grows. And in Lamech's eyes, we see a summary of the situation in verse 23. Look at this. Lamech says to his wives, look at his boast. Adda and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, Lamech's is 77-fold. Look at his boast. If Cain is the world's first murderer, then Lamech is the world's first narcissist. Because Lamech boasts of his violence. Lamech boasts of taking revenge. 77-fold. And look at it. It's a coward's boast. 
out of proportion to the injury. Do you notice that when, Cain, when Lamech says? It was a young man, a lad, a boy. A boy wounds him. Perhaps it's got a graze or a bruise. A boy wounds him, wounds his pride. It is totally over the top, totally out of proportion to the injury. Lamech boasts that a boy wounds him, so he is so violent, he kills him. Lamech boasts he's more violent and vengeful than Cain ever was. Here, friends, is the first picture of domestic violence. This is the first picture of domestic violence in the Bible. Why? Notice this. Lamech takes two wives. Now, God said you're not to do that. One wife, that's the plan. We hear polygamy in our days and we go, oh, that's great. Yeah, polygamy is fantastic. Every time you see polygamy in the Bible, human history, how does it go? Badly. And who for particularly? Women. And this man who takes two wives like their property in his household, how, how do you think they feel when their husband who takes two wives like they're just kind of his property, how do you feel like they feel when then at the dinner table he's saying, you see how violent I can be? This is domestic violence, friends. Boasting of violence in front of your wives and children and about a boy that you killed? Friends, God made a world so very good. Do you see what sin is doing to us? And to say on the news today, this week, we can't say that we are sinners. You can't say someone has sin. It's not okay to say we're broken. Are you kidding me? Do you have any grip on reality? Do you want to protect people, care for people? Are you kidding me? If anything, read Genesis 4. Lamech is the great grand son of Cain, but he's 77 times worse than Cain. God created this world to be good, very good, and all we can do is make it very bad. Culture is corrupted. Everything God made is... People are doing their worst to undo it. Friends, we're sinners. We are sinners. Let's be honest. And Genesis 4 shows us we need something. We don't need more sinners and more leaders who are sinners to say we're not sinners, as if that's not true. I can wave my hand and say that doesn't exist. What we need is another offspring. Verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again. Back to the the grandparents. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said... God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Abel in Hebrew is Havel. You know what that means? It's an Ecclesiastes. It means vapour. His life was vapour. It was too short. Cut short by murder, by sin. So Seth is born to Adam and Eve. The mother of all living speaks again with God's word, ringing in her ears. And she says, maybe Seth will be a serpent crusher. 
It's gotten out of control. Our own son has killed our other son. Maybe Seth will be the serpent crusher. And the rest of Genesis now follows the line of Seth. And all our hopes are dependent that through Seth, there'll be that offspring that someone will come. And the good news is he has come, friends. And his name is not Seth. It's not Methuselah. It's not Enoch. It's not any of those guys. It's not Noah even. It's not Moses. That's more offsprings later. His name is Jesus and he is the Christ. Have you ever wondered why the Bible says Captain Obvious Things? Like, what are you talking about? Why don't you look at verse 25? This is a Captain Obvious verse. It's a saying, by the way. If you're new to that phrase, it means it's very obvious. I just hope that made sense. Adam knew his wife again and she bore a son. That is fairly obvious. Why is the Bible giving us another verse on the birds and the bees, or just how things work? Why? Why the description like this? Because that's the normal way, isn't it? Why is the Bible telling us again the normal way? Because one day there will be a son born not in the normal way. One day, you won't read about Joseph and Mary... Joseph knew Mary and they had a son named him Jesus. No, no, no. You will read in the New Testament there will be a son, an offspring born, not in the normal way, but in God's way, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and he is the rescuer of all this mess of us sinners. He is Saviour. Hebrews 12, 24, we read this earlier as our cross-reference passage. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does that mean? It means everything. See, it means where Abel's bloodshed testified of guilt. Abel's bloodshed cried out from the ground and said, sin has happened here. What does Jesus' blood cry out? Sin is dealt with here. How can you and I possibly deal with a secret killer of sin? By believing in the offspring who is the Christ. Don't live your life with self-reliance. Don't hold on to your sins, harboring bitterness and anger and hate and murder. Don't hold on to that. Sin is crouching at your door, friends. It will eat you alive until you're dead. No, no. Now we've got good news, friends. I can't fix my sin. Cain couldn't fix his sin. He could not rule over it. I can't rule over my sin. Not myself. Not without Christ. Not without his spirit. Gossips will become the gossip. Haters become the hater. The angry more angry. But of course, we think we'll have institutions and good intentions and legislation. It does not work. The only thing that will address the silent killer of sin that lurks in our hearts is to the last verse of this passage. Call out to the name of the Lord. Look at verse 26. To Seth also bore a son, 
His name is Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. It's the very last verse, and it's a verse of hope. God has overseen the episode of Genesis 4. He's seen this again and again in plain human history. And all the death and hate and murder and sin that goes on, that we think happens behind closed doors, God has seen that too. And God is not going to do nothing about it. God is having a time of patience for us to repent, to turn from our sin and turn to Jesus and trust in him. Cain calls out, my punishment's greater than I can bear. But don't you and I do that too? My punishment is greater than I can bear. But look to Jesus who bore the punishment for us. I can't bear it. He did. To call on the name of the Lord now means to respond in the opposite way to Cain. Say, yes, I am a sinner. Oh, I'm so sorry. I repent of hurting those people. I repent of of wronging you, God. Forgive me of my sin. And you know what you get? Forgiveness, cleansing, renewal, and hope forever. And by his spirit, Romans 8 verse 13, you can now put sin to death. Yes, it's a whole lifetime, but you can know your life is safe in Christ. Call on the name of the Lord, friends, and be forgiven. Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? What is the implied answer to that? Yes. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. You are meant to love your brother and sister. You are meant to care for them, not accuse them and attack them and hurt them. You're meant to love them. And now we can because of Jesus. Which means when people say to us, I I see, Russ, there's some sin in your life, this, this, this in your life. Instead of responding, what? You're calling me out on something? How dare you? No, no, we don't need to do that anymore here. Not in our church. Not because we've got Jesus. We can say, yeah, thank you for that. You may well save my life in Christ in that moment by pointing me to Jesus. Thank you. Why would we do anything else? Why would we act like Cain? This is the good news of Jesus for us. I love in the New Testament... Jesus is talking about that kind of forgiveness, right? Loving your brother. And Peter, I love Peter because he's like us. He's like me. He's always asking the dumb question no one wants to ask. And he says, Jesus, you're talking about forgiveness. But how many times should I forgive my brother? Like, let's pick a really big figure. Seven times? You know what Jesus says? Do you have Lamech's words ringing in your ears? Lamech says, if Cain's vengeance is seven times, mine's 77 times. Jesus says, no, don't, don't kill, don't hurt 77 times. You forgive now 77 times. Because we can. Because we call out to the name of the Lord who forgives us 77 times. And by the way, that is low-level hyperbole because it's more than that, isn't it? The same Lord who counsels Cain has just spoken to us from his word. And he's saying this. Call on my name. I come to you with grace, patience and rescue. Call on my name. Trust him. Because you can. 
Friends, that's good news to sing about. Let's pray. Lord, we need you. Oh, we need you. Every hour we need you. Our one defense, our righteousness. Oh, Lord, how we need you. As we come to you, we call on your name. We do that in song now, in our response. We do it in prayer now, in our response. Because our response is only a response to your grace to us in Jesus Christ. And so we say in thankful prayer, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for him whose blood was shed and testifies and says we are forgiven by faith in him. So we pray, help us to guard against the sin of self-reliance, of self-righteousness. Help us to be real about our sin, confess it, see it put to death, brought to light. And help us to have not faith in ourselves, but faith in Jesus, who is the pure, perfect sacrifice for us, the one we need. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.